This week on Life and Faith. We are starting the straighten up and fly right maneuver where the spacecraft will jettison the entry balance masses in preparation for parachute deploy and to roll over to give the radar a better look at the ground. Applicate indicate shoot deploy. Perseverance has now slowed to subsonic speeds and the heat shield has been separated. This allows both the radar and the cameras to get their first look at the surface. Current velocity is 145 meters per second and an altitude of about 9.5 kilometers above the surface. TBA is nominal. We have priming of the landing engines. Tango Delta. Touchdown confirmed. Perseverance safely on the surface of Mars, ready to begin seeking the sands of past life. You couldn't have paid me a million dollars a year to do something different. Why does consciousness exist in the first place? Forgiveness and reconciliation takes strength. It was a bit of a culture shock when I hit Sydney. We hope the truth will out. This is Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. That was the sound of NASA's latest rover, Perseverance, landing on the surface of Mars a few weeks ago. It's another step in humanity's search for signs of life on our red neighbour. Now, all of this is incredibly astonishing to me. I mean, you can watch that landing in high definition. The rover even has a drone for aerial reconnaissance. And it's all mind-blowing. I mean, when I was growing up, TV shows like My Favourite Martian or Lost in Space, that was a bit of a favourite of mine, or Orson Welles' War of the Worlds, had travelling to Mars well and truly in the realm of science fiction. But there are people who believe a manned mission to Mars isn't that far off. And a few years ago, Natasha Moore spoke to someone who is already, in a way, preparing for that trip. So, given the recent activity of getting craft to Mars and how that's becoming more and more routine, we thought it was timely to return to that episode. Here it is. Right. Let's do the math. Our service mission here was supposed to last 31 souls. For redundancy, they sent 68 souls worth of food. That's for six people. So for just me, that's going to last 300 souls, which I figure I can stretch to 400 if I ration. So, i got to figure out a way to grow... Three years worth of food here on a planet where nothing grows. Luckily, I'm a botanist. Mars will come to fear my botany powers. In case that didn't sound familiar, it's from the movie The Martian. Matt Damon plays an astronaut and botanist who gets stuck on Mars, and he has to figure out a way to grow enough food to feed himself until the next mission to Mars arrives, in a few years' time. If you haven't seen it, it's not really a spoiler to say that Mars does come to fear his botany powers. And then, of course, there's a parallel plotline about coming back to rescue him. Actually, quick tangent here. It turns out that if you look back over Matt Damon's filmography, he has had to be rescued a lot. Someone even sat down a few years ago and calculated approximately how much fictional money has been spent rescuing Matt Damon. Uh, In Saving Private Ryan, for example, the search party sent into World War II Europe would probably have cost about $100,000, they say. Uh, Syriana, $50,000. Courage Under Fire, $300,000. There are a bunch more movies. I've only heard of about half of them. But of course, the costs spike a bit with the space movies he's in. Interstellar, they reckon $500 billion. 
Uh, in the Martian, it's a much more modest $200 billion. So the total amount spent attempting to bring Matt Damon back from distant places, $900 billion plus change. Anyway, The Martian, great movie. Not being a scientist or an engineer myself, I was pretty untroubled by the question of how accurate either his botany or the space travel stuff in it really was. But recently, I was at a science and faith conference run by ISCAST, a group of Christian scientists, and I got to speak with a couple of people who think about these kinds of practical realities all the time. Later, you'll hear from Jonathan Clark, an Australian who's been on a mission to Mars. Well, sort of. It was a Mars simulation. So he was still on Earth. But essentially, it's a dress rehearsal for when they eventually do send a manned mission to Mars. As close as you can get to the real deal for now. But first, here's James Garth. He is an aerospace engineer who says that getting people to Mars really is just the next step in space exploration and could happen, is even very likely to happen within our lifetime. For starters, I wanted to know what exactly does an aerospace engineer do? Uh, I get to play with big boys' toys every day. Uh, My main job is to make sure the wings don't fall off. If the wing falls off, it's a bad day. If the wing stays on, it's a good day. Does the wing fall off a lot? It tends to not fall off, although we design it so it only just doesn't fall off because it needs to be light enough to get off the ground. So you're flying around in things that only just work. So the wings of what are we talking about? Oh, uh, commercial airliners, yeah. Okay. So so we've got this method down pat. You don't have to worry about anything. But aerospace is a really demanding profession because you're pushing yourself up against the extremes of what is actually possible. You've got to shave out weight at every opportunity. You've got to constantly innovate and use new materials, new technologies. And that's why I actually love doing aerospace engineering. It's just a really fun and challenging pursuit. Tell me where you think we're at in terms of space travel. Well, right at the moment, we're going through an interesting phase of commercialisation of space exploration. So you've got companies like SpaceX and what Elon Musk is doing, working in the private sector, albeit with a lot of government-backed funding, to try and commercialise space. Uh, You've also got mainstream outfits like NASA and the equivalent Russian and Chinese uh, organisations more formally pursuing their own programs. The real target for the next few decades will be Mars and actually getting people to set foot on Mars. So we've explored a lot of our solar system with probes. We've sent probes to the the inner planets and the outer planets. Uh, And I think we've got to that point where we, we know what's sort of going on within our own local area. But in terms of getting people out there, that's the next big step. It's clear that James really likes his job and really likes space. This was true from a pretty young age for him. He told me about seeing an ad in a magazine years ago. Actually, he can't remember what the ad was for, but the effect it had on him has stayed with him. So one of my formative experiences was as a young, budding aero engineer reading through a copy of Aviation Week and seeing on the back cover a full-page ad saying, in 200 years, spaceflight will be routine. You, however, will be dead. And I looked at this, to this day, I can't remember what it was advertising. It might have been aviation insurance or something. I don't know, because I was too busy trying to pick myself off the floor from this existential crisis that had been induced by this ad. I realised that for all these wonderful technologies, for all these incredible achievements that you see, you know, rockets that can be reused and drones that can fly long missions and amazing stuff, every discovery by the Hubble or the Kepler, there's this realisation that at the bottom, 
when all the really, really good stuff comes along, I'm going to be dead. It was inevitable that chatting to an aerospace engineer, we would turn to sci-fi sooner or later. I had a lot of questions. Uh, Take Interstellar, for example. So they say you want to go from here to there. But it's too far, right? Mm -hmm. So a wormhole bends space like this, so you can take a shortcut through a higher dimension. Okay, so to show that, they've turned three-dimensional space into two dimensions, which turns a wormhole into two dimensions, a circle. What's a circle in three dimensions? Sphere. Exactly. A spherical hole. But who put it there? Who do we have to thank? I'm not thanking anybody until we get out of here in one piece, Rom. It's got wormholes, time travel, five-dimensional universes. It's hectic. What is going on in this film? But one thing that the clip touches on is this idea that a lot of modern science fiction assumes that there is no higher power. Matthew McConaughey's character isn't going to thank anyone or anything for this wormhole that's appeared that's going to lead him and his fellow space traveller to safety. If we're honest, we would say that the canvas upon which modern science fiction is painted is often a naturalistic canvas insofar as they don't invoke supernatural causes or they don't refer to God or gods in any major way. They will look at themes like mortality and ethics and artificial intelligence Things like Blade Runner 2049 really delved into those things deeply. And they're not always critical of religions per se, but they kind of assume that there's no one really in control of the show. Is it also a question of kind of human self-sufficiency? We have us and that's all we have. Well, yeah, this was the thing of Interstellar, right? A bit of a spoiler alert at the end. (laughs) Highly evolved humans help out earlier humans by creating wormholes and other cool things. So are there more theistic versions of this kind of you know, literature or film, how do you imagine that panning out? There are movies and series that kind of venture into that territory. They dip their toes in, like Avatar might be a very interesting one. In this you see um, what is effect, another spoiler, but the, the resurrection of the dead at the end, okay? This character, you know, gets a new body and he explores this new world and it's really interesting and you can think about that and go, oh, okay, that might make ideas like resurrection come alive more to you after seeing that. And C.S. Lewis also wrote a space trilogy where he had the Earth as a fallen world and all the other worlds uh, didn't fall to the same degree as mankind. And you think, oh, maybe there are other worlds that are have the same moral dilemmas as, as we have, but maybe they haven't fallen as far or maybe their plan of redemption is different. So I think there's a lot of really interesting sci-fi ideas that could be explored within a less naturalistic lens and still be really interesting. Scientists and engineers, I don't know if you'll think this is fair, but they can have a reputation for favouring function over beauty. What role do you think beauty has in doing science and maybe especially space science? I think you're right that we tend to be functionalists uh, as engineers, although one of the greatest aeronautical engineers of all time was Kelly Johnson from the Lockheed Skunk Works. And he said that if a plane looks ugly, it will fly ugly. So beauty was actually, for him, a key to the aerodynamic and uh, airworthiness of the aircraft. And so I think there's actually a little bit of wisdom still in, in Callie Johnson's thoughts. But I think beauty is something that... I think we all recognise whether we're a theist or a naturalist or from whatever background, we kind of... we know it when we see it. 
And what I want to challenge people to do is think, how does their worldview treat beauty? Is it something we can enjoy, but ultimately will get you know crushed out by the burning sun in a few billion years' time or the heat death of the universe? So beauty is transient, and maybe even beauty is illusory, ultimately. It might be so subjective. Or do we see beauty as something that is a pointer to something more? Are we meant to follow the clues? What are these things saying about our world? When it comes to the big questions about space exploration, like whether we should actually do it, and if we do, how we should go about it, James's Christian worldview has a lot to do with how he thinks about this stuff. I hold to the view that um, the meaning of life is to bring glory to God by enjoying him forever. Now, what does enjoying God mean? Well, it means appreciating all of the wondrous variety, both of this world and in the worlds beyond ours. And this feeds into other things like creation care, how we care for our earth and are good stewards for it. Um, This should also apply as we move forward in the cosmos. We should move forward with respect and, and valuing and bringing order and stewardship to these other worlds. What does your faith do for your existential angst? It means that I, I can't put all of my eggs in the basket of wanting to be satisfied in this life here and now. That's just not achievable. My faith gives me hope that the seeds that we plant in this life will grow and become trees that we can enjoy and explore in the next life. How do you imagine that? Well, I think um, to quote Martin Luther... He was once asked, what would you do if you knew that Jesus was returning tomorrow? And he said, plant a tree. And I I just love that because it's showing that while there's discontinuity between this life and the next life, obviously we must be brought back in some form by the creator. The things that we do carry on and live on. And I'm thinking of intangible things too, like friendship, art, music. Okay, so I see a place for these things in the new creation that is coming. So do you think these beliefs impact how you do your work and how you kind of approach this whole business of, you know, humans should push forward? It's a challenge for those of us who want to see the fruits of our labour and we're working on things that can be so vast they will outlive our own mortal lives. I think the idea of a new heaven and new earth, a restored and redeemed cosmos, gives me some hope that all this toil is not for naught. This is Life and Faith from CPX, and today we're marking the landing of NASA's new Mars rover, Perseverance, by rebroadcasting an episode from 2017. In this half of the show, Natasha speaks to Jonathan Clark who has been practicing for life on Mars in the Utah desert and the Arctic Circle. The actual question, is there life on Mars, has long been asked by humans. And if the scientists I spoke to at this conference are right, even if there never has been before, the plan is that there will be in the future. Hi, my name is uh, Jonathan Clark. I am an astrogeologist. Gotta say, I didn't know that astrogeology was a thing, until I met Jonathan Clark. It's a pretty cool title, really topped only by the fact that he is also the president of the Mars Society Australia, which I also didn't know was a thing until this conversation. The Mars Society Australia is an organisation that uh, works towards uh, the human presence on Mars. 
And so we do public outreach about space exploration, about uh, the significance of exploring Mars, going to Mars for human future. And we also work towards uh, Australia actually getting a space program because we're one of only two countries in the OECD which doesn't have one. <laughs> Oops. Whoops, indeed. <laughs> it's very embarrassing when uh, Angola and Laos have a bigger space, civil space program than Australia. <laughs> Going to Mars in the future, one of the goals of Mars societies all around the world, will take a lot of preparation and planning and practice. In fact, there have been several missions to Mars simulated here on Earth to really nut out the details, what works, what doesn't, who we might want to send. And as it happens, John Clark is one of those people. Yes, uh, in 2016 and 2017, I was very privileged to be part of the uh, Mars 160 program. So this was a project of the US Mars Society, which is a sister organization, to carry out uh, two uh, very similar expeditions, twin missions, uh, in their station in Utah and their station in the Canadian Arctic on Devon Island. And we spent, uh, would spend ideally 80 days at each location simulating a Mars mission. We would use the, essentially the same facility because these are twin stations. We would have the same crew uh, or almost the same crew and we'd be doing similar work. But in one, we'd be working in a cold desert environment in the Canadian Arctic and the other in a hot desert in, environment in Utah. Although, let me tell you, uh, Utah in winter is a lot colder than the Canadian Arctic in summer. <laughs> so uh, why these two particular places? How do they map in terms of being Mars-like? Both these areas are what we call Mars analogues. They have features on them that are similar to Mars in some respects. So in the Canadian Arctic, the ground is frozen. There's permafrost. We know there's permafrost in, in Mars. The station is on the edge of the Horton Impact Crater, which is a 20-kilometer in diameter impact crater blasted into the Canadian Arctic by an asteroid hitting the Earth uh, 35 million years ago or so. Uh, in Utah, you've got a, a red, dry desert with rocks that are full of clays, full of sulfates, just like we see on Mars. So uh, although it's not a, a cold desert, you know, it's a, a hot desert. There are geological similarities which we can study. In the Canadian Arctic, we can look at the cold desert aspects. And together, looking at these two different environments and the processes operating and their signature in the environment helps us understand Martian processes and how we go about studying them. Because when we go there to study, we're living in a habitat, a tuna can we call it, eight metres high, eight metres in diameter, two decks. There were seven of us in Utah, six in the Arctic. And we don't go outside uh, for operational reasons without wearing a simulator spacesuit. So if you want to go outside to look at some rocks or study some bacteria, you put on a suit, you, you set up your communications network, you sit in the airlock for five minutes, to depressurize, as it were, uh, then you go out and uh, do your work, and then you reverse all of that to come back inside. So you don't just sort of you know duck outside for a, um, a smoke if any of us smoked, which none of us did, or just to enjoy the view. It's a, a serious, a serious event. Just like being on Mars, going outside would be a serious event. So do you get a bit stir crazy? You're there for weeks and weeks and you can't go outside yeah. without putting on a spacesuit and you're with these same seven or eight people. You're too busy. I mean, pe people ask questions like that all the time. What do you do all the time? And it's, it's sort of the expectation you sit there looking at each other, waiting for <laughs> someone to pick their nose and then you can tear them to shreds. But you're working 12, 13-hour days, six days a week. Uh, you're planning your next EVA, you, you are 
doing the uh, EVA, your extravehicular activity, you are working out the results, you're supporting other people as they go out. There's cooking and cleaning, there's uh, burning your toilet waste. <laughs> as we say, the crew, the poos together, stays together. So <laughs> you do all your business in plastic bags and you put it in an incinerator every couple of days and you burn it. I mean, That was are, going to be one of my questions. Yeah, <laughs> it's going to be, a, you know, you are very good friends uh, after all of this. Yeah. And they were great. I mean, I'd do it again with that crew. I mean, they were really, really nice people. Uh, I mean, we're all very different. We had someone from India, two Australians a Canadian, an American, a Russian, and a Frenchman. Uh, so we're an international crew, very different backgrounds, different ages, but we all worked really well together. They're, they're more family than friends now. And they have different skills. Very much so. What so, were their specialisms? And are those the kinds of people that we would actually take to Mars? Yes, we had uh, two geologists. Uh, we had a, a biologist and um, several engineers. Uh, some of them were aerospace engineers. Uh, we had a journalist who's also an aerospace engineer student. Uh, she's uh, studying to be a cosmonaut in Russia. And uh, we also had an artist on board uh, who's also a, um, a communications person. So she was very, very good in terms of... Because we spent a lot of time writing reports. So you can't escape paperwork, even on <laughs> Mars. So she was really good as a professional communicator to make sure that what we said made sense and uh, was concise and so on. Do you ever get so immersed in the mission that you kind of forget that you're not on Mars? It's a role play. For practical purposes... You know, the more you get into that mindset, you know, the more you get out of it and the more valuable it is. So, yes, the first time or we went outside at the end of the simulations of, ooh, we're going outside, not wearing a spacesuit. But it is a role play. So in, in an emergency, you can drop that very quickly and go and do what you do. And so, for example, in the Arctic, uh, we'd send two people out on an extravehicular activity, but we'd always have a third person out there who wasn't wearing a spacesuit and they were carrying a shotgun uh, because there's big white furry things in the Arctic that might <laughs> eat you. It won't be those on Mars. But, yeah, we always have someone on so polar bear. So far as we know. Polar, as far <laughs> as we know. So we always have someone on polar bear uh, duty. And uh, I had to go through all the training here in Australia, so I'm known to the federal police as the polar bear guy. <laughs> because why do you want a, to use a pump-action shotgun, which is uh, not an easy weapon to get a licence for in Australia? Well, polar bears. And so, oh, yeah, you better write it up. So I wrote this sort of five-page <laughs> document and they were, had a good laugh over it. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't sound like the most convincing story so I'm kind of going to Mars and there might be polar bears. <laughs> yeah that's right. So what did you learn from these expeditions that might help us when or if we go to Mars? Well I think we showed that a well-selected crew, people who knew each other, uh, who were committed to working together, who were respected each other's differences, could do a very very successful expedition under uh, many of the conditions that we have on Mars. We, we, we knew this already, but it's just good to reinforce that. We got an idea of how much time uh, we could actually spend exploring Mars when you're there. You know, you go to Mars, there's a lot of work to do inside your habitat, but you're not there to sort of sit inside your habitat all the time. You're there to go out and explore the planet. And we, we worked out that you could probably do a, um, an EVA, an extravehicular activity, probably at least two, perhaps three per person per week. So you'd have a crew outside with six people on the surface of Mars every day uh, during a six-day week. That, that's the other thing. You know, we need a day off every week. Otherwise, you just get too ratty. You need that time to relax 
and read a book and sleep in and I mean you do a few things you'd write your diary and you know the housework would continue but just take it easy yeah mm-hmm. six days you shall labor it's very true even on Mars so we've done some practice missions on earth but I wanted to hear from John how close exactly he thinks we are to sending people to Mars if we put our minds to the society we could be on Mars in 10 years the technology we either have or we have prototypes for, uh, it's just a matter of developing it. Uh, we know the people are tough enough and clever enough to be able to do it. We know the sort of people who will do it. It's a, just a matter of, of the political will of committing the resources to it. And the resources aren't that much. I mean, they're a lot for you and me, but compared to the amount of money that we spend on fighting wars of dubious value in various parts of the world, it's actually quite trivial. So it could, be, it could take 100 years if we don't put our minds to it. But I think sooner or later, someone's going to try it. If it's not the US or Europe, it could be China or India or Japan in, in 50 years' time. How long does it take to get there? Uh, six months there. You spend probably 18 months on the surface and then six months home again. Two and a half years, wow. which is the length of time that people spent uh, going to the Antarctic in the classic uh, era of exploration, Scott and Amundsen and Shackleton. They're all there for two years, three years, Mawson would be another one. Uh, the other thing to think about is it takes six months to get to Mars. The first fleet when they came to Australia took eight months to get here. Mm. So Australia, 200 and something years ago, was Mars for people in Europe. There's definitely some pushback, though, to the whole idea of humans colonising, settling, mining, doing anything much in space. The opposition comes not as popular mythology would have it from people with strong religious convictions. Uh, You know, we shouldn't go into space because it's desecration. Uh, But it comes from people with a very strong environmental perspective that somehow by going to, you know, that humanity is a disease and uh, people are quite adamant that we should stay here and fix our own problems and uh, we shouldn't impoverish the Earth as a sort of some sort of perception that we're spending obscene amounts of money going to space when it is actually hasting our decline back into a new dark age from which there is no recovery. So it's a very strange and incoherent, but very deeply felt passions that we should stay here and either fix our problems here or just not contaminate the rest of the universe. What is the picture of human nature that is going with this kind of pushback? You could say it is a sense of total depravity, that, that humans are a blot on the landscape, they're a virus, their stars are better off without us. Of course, in, in, in the Christian worldview, we balance that with the fact that God is gracious, and not only gracious to those who put their trust in him, but he's also gracious to those who have not. God sends his reign on the just and the unjust alike, as it says in the Bible. And... We see in the world around us, yes, there are great evils, but there's also great good that is done, often by Christians, often by non-Christians. And this is that common grace at work. And when we go into space, yes, we take our problems, but we also take that grace with us. You think of the Apollo program, which was a very nationalistic program of beating the Russians to the moon in terms of making a grand technological gesture. And yet that experience transformed itself because what did they do when they got there? In 1968, Christmas time, Apollo 8 circled the moon, and they read the first few verses of Genesis. Uh, the very first moon landing, uh, shortly after landing and everything was settled down, Buzz Aldrin said, I would like to take this moment to, uh, for everyone to reflect 
on what has happened and give thanks in uh, his or her own way. And then uh, he read to himself the passage from John about I am the vine and you are the branches and took communion on the moon. Yeah, so no science fiction story, uh, no futurist ever predicted that one of the very first things that people would do on the moon would be to take communion. But he did that. Do you want to go to Mars? I'd love to go to Mars. <laughs> Why? I think there's many reasons. Some people go to Mars because it's the frontier. You know, some people want to go to Mars because they, you know, maybe we can set up a new society there that avoids the errors of the old and make new mistakes and, and find you know, new ways of doing things. Uh, other people want to go for, you know, because they think they can uh, mine resources or, or make money from it. For me, I love beautiful places. And Mars has grandeur. It's got you know, volcanoes uh, with cliffs eight kilometres high and canyons 12 kilometres deep. It's got blue sunsets and pink skies and uh, great dust storms. It, it's uh, an extraordinarily beautiful landscape. And I just love to be able to explore that in person. Uh, I love deserts. You know, my experience in the, in, the, in the Arctic, I love the Arctic being isolated, that sense of uh, being away from everything and everyone, but still close to God. I mean, they, you know, God is with you there. Wherever you go, you know, uh, as Psalm 139 says, wherever you go, God is there with you, and uh, even in your spacesuit. And uh, I like that feeling. <laughs> and historically, in many cultures, people have gone into the desert, into the wilderness to contemplate life, to come to a deeper understanding of themselves of the nature of the, of the universe. You know, philosophers, poets, prophets have gone seeking the voice of God, scientists have gone studying the mysteries of the universe, and, and Mars is, is the ultimate desert in some respects. This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart. Thanks to Natasha Moore for that episode and thanks today to James Garth and Jonathan Clark for sharing something of their stories. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not let someone else know? Send them the link, get them into the conversation and help us spread the word about life and faith. Next week. Jesus is more than a philosopher, according to Christianity. He's God incarnate. He is the king of the universe. He is the one who dies on behalf of people's sins. Those are all the Christian understanding of Jesus. But he's not less than a philosopher, as I like to say. That is, he's also teaching us how to live well, both now and for eternity. And so he's giving wisdom. He's clearly shown in the Bible to be a wisdom teacher.